0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com. Most Christians don't know the amazing benefits experiencing the Bible lands can have on their walk with God. So, I created an online resource that helps anyone get the most from a Holy Land tour, whether they travel there physically or experience it virtually through our videos. Check it out at WalkingTheBibleLands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible to your life. In this episode, we complete the book of 2 Peter with some great insight from Peter on how to keep growing in your walk with God the rest of your life. We're calling the message Growing, Growing Gone. I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's hear this week's podcast. Well, in our previous home, we planted an oak tree in the front yard, and it was pretty skinny. You know, when you buy an oak tree, they cost enough to begin with, so you have to sort of start small and just sort of pray that they grow fast. Well, planted this oak tree, and a couple hours after we planted it, noticed that it was really leaning over in the wind. went over to it, you know, it was just kind of... Moving around, if you don't stake it down, you could see the ball of it moving. So we staked it down, and then it didn't move around, regardless of the wind. Well, a couple of years later, by then we've taken the stakes away, but it really hadn't grown that much. Went over to it again and tried to move it, but boy, it was solid. And it was interesting to note or to observe that in the first couple of years of this oak tree, God had programmed the oak tree to focus on its roots. That its goal for the first couple of years was to get a good solid root you know, system going and not so much to worry about the fuss above ground. It really hadn't grown that much. And we can go back to that neighborhood now some 25 years later and that tree is looking great. It's now as big as we wanted it to be when we planted it before we moved off. It's <laughs> the way it is. Well, I think all of us feel the daily tension of the tree in a sense. Because when we, when we get together on Sunday mornings, a, a lot of what we focus on, to be honest, is what's above ground, isn't it? We make sure we look good. We make sure our limbs and our leaves are all clean and straight and trimmed and that the tree is looking pretty good. Nobody, nobody looks at a tree and says, boy, look at those roots, Because you don't see the roots. You only see what's above ground. And yet it's the roots that make all the difference when the wind blows. Having a great-looking branch with beautiful leaves does nothing when the wind blows. Our spiritual lives are like that. Um, We will water our leaves. We will try to lengthen our limbs. The temptation is to neglect our roots. We'll give priority to the things that are visible and impressive and sort of assume that the roots will take care of themselves. But they don't. Our spiritual lives never take care of themselves. We never grow by accident. If someone is a spiritual person, it's because they have chosen to be a spiritual person. God didn't just touch them and they all of a sudden became spiritual. You don't just wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, well, you know, look at that, I'm spiritual. I never thought it would happen, but there it is. That's never going to happen, is it? And our culture is no help. Even when you're standing at the the magazine racks and look at the titles of magazines, it's no help. We've got magazines like uh, Bodybuilder, Fashion, Vanity Fair, uh, Vogue, you're never going to see a publication called Popular Morality or Self-Control Digest or The Perseverance Report or Love Illustrated, though that might make some sales. (laughs) But truly, though, in the world we live in, it's all about the leaves. The roots are assumed until the wind blows and then reveals the taproot of life and our connection to him Jesus Christ well let's look together at second peter this is our last time together our last message our last focus in this great book second peter chapter 3 last week Kathy and I were sitting on our in the bench in the front yard and we were commenting, noticing the crepe myrtles that we have in our front yard. There's a crepe myrtle, like, right in front of us that's, like, 20 feet tall, and it's just really, did really well. But, like, you know, 15, 20 feet behind that crepe myrtle is another set of crepe myrtles that we, or one crepe myrtle that we planted at the same time, and it's still hardly 5, 6 feet tall. And I asked my my wife, who loves all things gardening and knows all things gardening, why the difference? She says, oh, that's easy. This one gets water more than that one. In fact, the tall tree had dropped seeds or whatever it drops to where other things grow, and another crepe myrtle had grown up right beside it that was as tall as the other one behind it that was as old as the big one. And it was all because it had what it needed to thrive. When I think about the book of 2 Peter, I think about the tools that are needed for us to thrive. What is needed for us to grow? And it's sort of strange when you think about the Christian life and the crepe myrtles, because the, the Christian who is thriving and the, the Christian who is, looks like just the five-foot crepe myrtle compared to the, to the one that's 20 feet tall, why the difference? Because one availed itself of what it takes to grow and the other did not. They both had access to it. Both Christians have access to, and of course we're speaking about the Word of God. But it's your spiritual life and my spiritual life are directly related to the Bible and how we not only read the Word, but, as we've already heard, become doers of the Word. Second Peter, as we've gone through this book, we've seen... Peter's emphasis on the Bible. In the very first chapter, he talks about how God's given us all we need for life and godliness. He's granted to us all we need through his precious promises. And he challenges us to be diligent, not only to have the Bible, but to live the Bible. That the qualities, and he lists a number of qualities. He says, if these are yours and are increasing, it will help you to be fruitful as we look for the coming of Jesus Christ. And he, he says, in fact, that's why I'm writing this. I want to always be ready to remind you of this. Because you need to be aware of what the Bible says, because as he says in chapter 2, there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be people that come and directly contradict the Bible. It was true in the Old Testament. Peter says it's going to be true right now. And it is true. We live in an age that directly tries to contradict Scripture and if we don't know the word we will fall um, we will fall prey to the deception of the, of the world so now in chapter 3 just look at glance glance at the first couple of verses once again by way of reminder peter says this is now beloved the second letter i am writing to you in which i'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Remember the Old Testament, Peter says, and the New, Testament, the New Testament. The New Testament that is just coming to be, as we'll see as we look in some of these verses today. Well, as we read down through chapter 3, we see Peter uh, telling us about the, uh, again, about the mockers who mock and say, where is Where is Jesus Says he's coming? Well, it's been the same as it's been since the creation of the world, that nothing's going to change. And, of course, Peter goes through and systematically takes that apart by saying God has never been soft on sin, and his promise is not because he can't do anything. His promise of not, or his delay is because he's patient. Because when he comes, it's not going to be good for those who have not believed. So let's continue. I think we ended last time with verse 11, but let's back up and take it from verse 10 and then walk down through the rest of this book. 2 Peter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So, the mockers that we read about in the first uh, nine verses, who demanded an answer to why hasn't Jesus come, if he's coming, really don't want him to come, if they, under- if they knew the word. <laughs> because when Jesus comes, as Peter says, uh, it begins the day of the Lord. It begins the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord, if you look out through the Old Testament, is, uh, it could represent a couple of things. There's Day of the Lord with a big D, and the Day of the Lord with a little d, you might say. There's the Day of the Lord, is just kind of general judgment throughout the Old Testament, but sometimes the Old Testament is pointing to the Day of the Lord with a big D, you might say. And in our New Testament theology, we understand that that's speaking of the Day of the Lord, the tribulation. And that's what Peter is speaking of. The Day of the Lord will come. And we know that prior to the day of the Lord coming, the rapture occurs. So at any moment, we can be taken up, and we will be with the Lord, and then God's clock on Israel starts again. And so anyway, this is not a lesson on eschatology or the end times, but Peter mentions it, and so it's helpful for us to realize that when he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, what he means is, after the rapture... The day of the Lord, the time of judgment on earth, is going to happen. So you really don't want Christ to come like you say you want him to come if you haven't believed in Jesus, because it's not going to be good. How does a thief come? A thief comes unexpectedly and suddenly. That's not slow. Peter tells us the day of the Lord, the heavens, probably meaning the sky and the stars, The universe will pass away with a roar. Um, And the elements, which which literally means just that, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. Um, And the molecules, in other words, that make up our universe will be destroyed. We'll talk about that just a little bit more in a moment. In fact, keep your finger here and turn back to Colossians chapter 1. And Dan will show the video here in just a second. Look at Colossians chapter 1. And once you get there, I want to show you a video. This is not a physics class. This is not a physics lesson, and I definitely am not qualified to teach that. I took one physics class, I think, in college. It was musical acoustics, and I barely got out of there with my brain still intact. But this is helpful for us to understand uh, what Paul will talk about here in Colossians and also what Peter is talking about in 2 Peter and also what John talks about in the book of Revelation. So let's look first at this video. Now this video, you're going to have to pay attention. Don't feel like if we get to the end of the video and you think, I didn't understand that at all. That's okay. Just looking for the big picture here. So, okay, Dan.
1: Hi, it is Mr. Anderson and this is AP Physics Essentials video 57. It is on the strong nuclear force. Remember there are four fundamental forces in the universe. We have got gravity and electromagnetism. They both operate at all scales with gravity dominating at the large and electromagnetism dominating in the small. But we also have the strong and the weak nuclear force. And it took scientists a while to figure that out just because we do not live at the scale of a nucleus. And so how is a strong nuclear force d- different than the others? Well, unlike gravity and electromagnetism, electromagnetism it only dominates at the very small scale. It is way stronger than all the other forces and it is what is holding the nucleus together and then the components of the protons and neutrons inside the nucleus as well. And so the the fundamental problem scientists saw right away with the nucleus is that if you have two positive charges and protons are going to be positive charges next to each other according to electromagnetic forces they should be pushing themselves apart. We should have repulsion. But they do not just go flying apart. They're held together. And so there must be a force, and we call that the strong nuclear force holding it together. It's the greatest of all the fundamental forces. Something like 130 times that of electromagnetism. And so once we get to this really small scale, and that's where strong forces are going to operate, it's going to take over. Now, how small do I mean? On the order of a femtometer, which is 1 times 10 to the negative 15th meters. And so once we get to the level of a nucleus, there's going to be a strong nuclear force, and this is a force between all of the components of the nucleus, both the protons and the neutrons, and it's holding it together. And even at a smaller level, if we look at the components of those nucleons, the quarks, it's holding those together to make the protons and the neutrons. And so how does a strong nuclear force work? What we think is going on is that mesons are going to be exchanged between these two protons. And so a meson is a quark and an antiquark, and it'll kind of bounce between the two, almost like a ping-pong ball, and it holds them together. So we have this strong force holding them together, not only protons, but neutrons as well. And you know this, that if we zoom into a proton itself, it's made up of all these quarks. And what's holding that together? We have these gluons that are literally gluing the proton together. And so the strong nuclear force is even greater as we get this, when we get to this small scale. And so we really have two worlds at play here. If we have two protons that are far enough apart, electromagnetism is going to push them apart. But once we get to the level of the strong nuclear force it is going to pull them together. And how big is this circle here? It is about two femtometers apart. Or it is about two and a half diameters of a proton apart. And so what happens is as we push this protons close electromagnetism is going to be that repulsion you see, but once we get inside that barrier, that strong nuclear force is gonna pull them together. And so where's an example of uh, us seeing that in science? Well, you could look inside the nucleus itself. And so if we're going with an atom that we're familiar with, like hydrogen, hydrogen has one proton, and so it's gonna sit inside this bond.
0: All right, so take out a blank sheet of paper. All right, so why did I show you that? I want you to see that, again, the most basic element of everything that's made up is an atom, and inside an atom is something that scientists really can't explain. He explained it, but did you notice that he said a couple of times what we think is going on? It's just a best guess. There's no science to this science because it, it doesn't make sense. The two positive protons should be pushing each other apart, ex- except... They, they don't push apart. So, what works outside the concept of an atom doesn't work inside an atom. What's, co- what's holding it together? It's called the strong nuclear force. Well, let's look at Paul's version of that. In Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 15. Colossians 1 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by, or maybe better, in him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." That word for hold together, I pulled out my handy linguistic key to the Greek New Testament. And I want to read part of this to you. Listen to what the word uh, that holds, holds together means. Uh, let's see. I'll pronounce it for you. It's sunistamai is the word. And here's what it means in, if you get down to the, the, the nitty-gritty of it. It means to place together, to stand together, to hold together, or cohere. Uh, And it's referring to Jesus. He is the principle of cohesion in the universe. God himself is the unifying band which encompasses everything and holds it together. This applies not only to the largest things of the universe, but also to the smallest things of the universe. So this, you know, this force, this unidentifiable force in which scientists do their best guess at what is keeping the atom together... The Bible gives us more than a guess and tells us it's Jesus, which, if you think about the power of God, is amazing, that you've got at the molecular or at the, at the atomic level, you've got God holding it all together. And so when Jesus Christ, at some point in God's sovereign plan, decides, you know what, we are done with the earth and the heavens, he's just going to let go and to let the atoms do what they naturally want to do. And there will be a huge atom bomb. In fact, Jesus, uh, Paul, Peter, where, what book are we in here? <laughs> Let's get back to Peter. Let's get back to Peter. Second Peter. You can tell I'm, this is not my wheelhouse talking about physics. But what Peter is saying is, uh, verse 10, The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Turn now to Revelation chapter 20. And let's look at what John says about this. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And then it goes through and talks about the judgment of all unbelievers, the dead, and they are judged according to their deeds, which is not a favorable outcome. But look at the beginning of chapter 21. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. So now back to Peter and will be in Peter for just a minute. So what Peter's talking about is something that both Paul talked about, it's something that John talks about, it's something I believe also Isaiah talks about. It is talking about the destruction of our world and not by a flood like it occurred during the time of Noah but by fire. And the fire at the level at at, at the smallest level of elements. In fact, so much so that the earth and the heavens disappear. They They are burned up. Where are we going to be when this happens? Believers are going to be standing safely behind God with some dark sunglasses and some SPF 500 on (laughs) and watching this amazing sight. You know, the angels were there at the creation of the world, and in Job we're told that the sons of God shouted for joy, that the angels shouted for joy at the creation of the world. We will be there at the destruction of the world, and we will get to see this amazing explosion uh, can't imagine. And then of course the creation of the new heaven and the new earth, in which there never has been any sin and never will be any sin for all eternity. Well, Second Peter three, let's continue at verse eleven, because this is not just an application for those who have yet to believe in Jesus Christ. Verse eleven Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? And godliness. How should we live? Peter asks, since we know the end of the story. Prophecy gives us insight not just to have insider information to scratch our curious itches about the future. Prophecy gives us a certain insight about our certain future to motivate us to how we would live today. Because the future is certain and the outcome is certain, God wins. And those of us who love Jesus Christ as well win. And so our motivation, even though we've placed our faith in Christ, is not, well, hey, I've got to get out of hell free ticket. But it's to live a life of gratitude and a life of holiness because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Holy conduct and godliness, Peter says, while we're looking forward and hate, as we hasten his coming. What does it mean to hasten the coming? How do we hasten God's sovereign plan? I mean, he's got the plan. How do we hurry up God's plan? Boy, this is a head-scratcher when you think about it. And it's sort of, the best I can understand it, as, you know, theologians also have uh, moments, like scientists have moments with the atom. There are parts that we as Christians look at the Bible and just go, well, as best we understand it, here's what we think. And some of that is like, God chooses us, and yet we're held responsible for choosing him. How does the sovereignty of God and the free will of man work together? Um, the Trinity is another great one. Uh, how can Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, be one God? Um, or the eternity of God. That, I remember as a little boy, trying to wrap my head around that. I could not, I still can't that God has always existed. He never had a beginning. If you really sit and think about that and try to imagine it, it's beyond comprehension. Hey, everyone, Wayne here. Thanks so much for those of you who have left a review for the podcast. In fact, one of the main ways that new listeners find the Live the Bible podcast is through listener reviews. So if you haven't left a review yet, would you mind doing so? you can do so at waynestyles.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. And now, back to the message. God has always existed. He never had a beginning. If you really sit and think about that and try to imagine it, it's beyond comprehension. But just because it's beyond comprehension doesn't mean it isn't true. It just means it's beyond comprehension for us now. Think about Uh, When our dogs jump in our cars. When we open the car door or lay down the the truck bed and the the dog gets all excited and jumps in the car, that dog is clueless how the car works, just knows that it works, right? For a dog, that is incomprehensible. Yet for us, it makes total sense how a car runs. Or for mechanics, it makes sense. I still don't know how cars run. But the point is, just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not understandable, at least at some point in the future. Uh, Paul says that we will know all things in the future, just as we are fully known. 1 Corinthians 13, I think. So, anyway, this was all going someplace. How do we hasten God's sovereign plan? Yes. Well... We don't know how our godliness somehow hastens God's plan, but we're told that it does. So it does. And it's done by living in such a way, perhaps, that as we live in such a way that it affects unbelievers to place their faith in Christ. And we know that that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, and so that's what God is waiting on. He's waiting for the last person in this age, this dispensation, to place their faith in Jesus Christ, and once they do rapture happens, and now we click on to the next chapter. So he's waiting for that, whoever that person is, uh, to believe, for all the people to believe up to that point. So we can hasten his coming, as it were, by living a godly life in such a way that influences others to place their faith in Christ, and therefore he comes. I was fascinated to read some time ago about the pioneers in the early days of the pioneers when they heard or saw in the distance that a prairie fire was coming. You didn't have long, but you had a little a little while to, to prepare for it. And I'm told that what they would do is they'd light a match in an area basically surrounding what it is they wanted to protect. And they would sacrifice, in a sense, part of their field or whatever to save their house. They would burn around what they wanted to save so that when the forest the forest fire when the prairie fire came it would come up to an area that had already been burned and it couldn't it couldn't burn any farther if you had been standing in a place that it was was already burned you wouldn't be burned because it's already been burned you think about that in relation to God's judgment when the ocean of fire approaches as it were when the judgment of God comes upon the world to sweep away those in another fire we want to be standing in a place that's already been burned we want to be standing in a place that's already been judged and that's in the position where Jesus Christ took that fire on our behalf when he died on the cross you know the great news about this about what peter writes and about what we read in the scriptures is that the fire that Peter's talking about and the judgment that's coming is not something that we ever, ever have to be personally involved in. Because Jesus did that for us. He took the heat, literally, on the cross. He died in our place. And we're told that all we have to do, it sounds fantastic, because it is, is to believe. Believe it. What do I have to do? To get to heaven. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a payment for your sins. The sins that would keep you out of heaven. Just believe it. And it's done. It's that simple. And because it's that simple for many people, it's that hard. Because you think that's too easy. Well, it wasn't easy for Christ. And for a lot of us, honestly, it's not that easy either. Because, you know, we want to have some contribution to our salvation. Our contribution was getting lost. God's contribution is providing Jesus. Verse 14. Peter writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Peter's telling us something here that he told us back in chapter 1, that Christians need to be diligent. Remember back in chapter 1 he said that? Be diligent to apply these things. Peter even said himself, I'm going to be diligent to remind you of these things. And once again he tells us, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And that takes a while, doesn't it? To get to the spotless and blameless part of the Christian life. Anybody yet spotless and blameless? Yeah. Carol, okay, one hand. Anybody else? <laughs> you were nodding off so I had to sort of <sighs> Just kidding, just kidding. She wasn't None of us are there, are are we? This is a process. And a lot of times, because we live in an instant age of instant everything, I mean, we have instant everything, don't we? From instant mashed potatoes to uh, uh, microwaves, you know, to one-click purchases, you know, on, on the Internet. We expect our spiritual lives, we get frustrated when it takes a long time to grow. And it does. It takes a long time to grow. And often it takes like the drip, drip, drip that forms a stalactite or a stalagmite. That's our spiritual life growing. And God, thank goodness, He is as patient with a day as like a thousand years because it takes that long sometimes for us to change. That's okay. The issue isn't speed, but direction. Now. One more time, let's turn, keep your finger there in Second Peter and turn to Proverbs. I read this this week, and it really impacted me personally, convicted me personally, and I thought, you know what? I want to share this conviction with others. No, seriously. It's a great lesson because of what uh, Peter writes about here. And growing and and being diligent to be found spotless and blameless. Proverbs chapter 9, look at verse 7. Proverbs 9, starting at verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. Now, let's just pause for a second and define scoffer. In the book of Proverbs, a scoffer is not like the proverbial fool uh, who simply, even the fool is not a fool in the sense that he lacks an ability to think. The scoffer is a person who has the ability to think but rejects the truth that's presented to him. He scoffs at it. A scoffer is a person who rejects any truth that comes to him by way of criticism. So, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by me, your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you alone will bear it. The idea is that the ultimate gainer or loser from our character or from how we receive truth or don't receive it, the ultimate gainer or loser is us. It's not others. It's us. It's you and it's me. How you respond to truth when it criticizes you, it's your loss or gain. Nobody else's, ultimately. It's the same with me. When I am criticized and I receive it, then I become the wise man that gets still wiser. But when I'm a scoffer, I've basically wasted the time of the person who cared enough, with the courage enough, to approach me. It's not easy. You know it as well as I do, that it's hard to receive it. But it's essential. It's essential. Okay, back to Second Peter. And here we'll stay. The last time we saw that the patience of our Lord is waiting for, for that Jesus is waiting to come for his church because God doesn't want any to perish but all to come to repentance. And Peter says again here in verse 15 to regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. The thought there is simply that the reason that he doesn't come right away is not because he's slow, it's not because he's forgotten, it's because he's patient and the patience of our Lord, we're to take that as salvation. Why hasn't Christ come? We so want him to come. He hasn't come because there are still people who need to believe, who need to accept Jesus Christ. Peter says Paul agrees with him. Let's read verse 15 again and then uh, continue. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Peter is saying that he and Paul agree on this when he says, just as our brother Paul has written. The biblical authors don't uh, contradict. They agree. And when you compare scripture to scripture and interpret scripture by scripture, it's helpful because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It's like no other book, if you think about it. We've mentioned this before. It contained the Bible is a book of books, it's really a library of 66 books. And just think about the odds of this 66 books written by 40 different people, 40 different authors from all walks of life, over a span of 1,500 years. So they couldn't have known each other to to go in cahoots on this. In three different languages, on three different continents, and yet there is one central theme among all this diversity. What are the odds that that could be just invented by people? And the one central theme is simply this, that the Bible is about God's kingdom, accomplished through the redemption of mankind through his Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel. That's the message of the Bible. And we're told, as Peter says it, and that uh, he and Paul agree. But I love that Peter says some of Paul's letters are tough to understand. Don't you love that about Peter? Here he is at the end of his life, still just the honest guy that we saw in the uh, in the Gospels. Of course, in the Gospels, most of the time his foot was in his mouth. But now here he says it, and you just have to love it and say, thank you, Peter, for telling us that. Because sometimes we'll read Paul and go, huh? And sometimes, oh, I was, it's sort of a rabbit trail, but Jesus is harder to understand to me than Paul. Paul's pretty easy compared to Jesus. Sometimes Jesus says stuff, and I just I just don't understand it. It's a, it's a head scratcher. But there's no contradiction because it's really ultimately, all this diversity is ultimately one author, and that's the Holy Spirit. Peter says to know this beforehand. Um, Paul's letters talk about this. And because some of it's hard to understand, it's easier to twist. You know, we may know good and well what the Bible says, but it's easy to twist it. The false teachers do it to their own destruction, but we can do it too. We can read the Bible and think, eh, you know, maybe it doesn't mean what it says it, is, what says it does. Roots take time to grow, but they will grow if we'll water them. So we stick with the Bible. We read the Word and we apply the Word to our lives. It's what Peter's saying in these final two verses. Look at verses 17 and 18. He writes, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The error of unprincipled men is that they have no principles and they have no discipline. They certainly don't have a commitment to the Bible like we do. And the challenge then is if we are going to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through the context of Second Peter, we know how to do that, don't we? It's by personal time in the Bible. It's by personal commitment to applying the Bible and having a dogged devotion to this every single day of our lives. It's the way it happens. He says, you know this beforehand, therefore live it out. Be on guard are his words. Guard every part of your life that is important to guard, especially your personal time with Jesus Christ. And he tells us to grow in two areas. Verse 18, grow in two areas, in the grace and the knowledge. Growing in knowledge means uh, facts, It's just that. You're growing in content. You're growing in information. Biblical ignorance is unfortunately one of the biggest atrocities in the church today. Sometimes poor decisions are made simply because people don't know what the Bible says about something. But the Bible speaks to so many issues that we deal with. But it's not just about knowledge. It's also about growing in grace. In fact, growing in grace... It's mentioned first. It's not just about information. It's about transformation. It's the application of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That focuses on the roots. That focuses on what's underground that nobody sees. You're focusing on deepening there so that when you branch out, uh, it, can, it can handle the storms. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 2, Peter tells us a very similar thing. He starts the book and ends the book in a very similar manner. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he begins saying that, and he ends saying the same thing, growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord. Let me give you an uncomfortable assignment just for a moment, just right here, right now. Think about this. If you were to die tomorrow, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, how would that affect today? What would you do differently? Maybe make peace with somebody? Maybe make peace with God? What would you tell the unbelievers that you came in contact with? What would you tell a brand-new Christian who just placed their faith in Jesus Christ about the Christian life that you've lived all your life. If you were to die tomorrow, how would you live today? That's really the mindset that we need to carry with us all the time because the reality is none of us knows the day of our death, though it's been written in God's book all along. Peter was in that exact situation as he writes 2 Peter. Remember, 2 Peter are the last words of Peter. These are the last words that we have from the great apostle before he was martyred, he knew he was about to die, having literally walked with Jesus Christ the last 30 years, having failed Jesus Christ miserably, which is so important to remember that even though you failed, God's not done with you. Peter is a living testimony of that. His, his, his life in the book of Acts, his two epistles, God's not done with you just because you fail. And thankfully, he's not done with any of us because of Christ's forgiveness. What a great book. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the life of Peter. We've been able to spend some months in his epistles, First and Second Peter, and so grateful for the humility by which he takes up his pen and writes for us the basics, keeps it so simple that we can't miss it, that you've given everything we need in life, through your word, through your magnificent promises, and that if we are diligent to add to our faith, to add to our simple faith in Jesus Christ, these qualities of godliness, then we will be able to stand strong when the wind blows, that our roots will be deep, and that we will be able to branch out and to be effective and fruitful for our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us wisdom, Father, when the scoffers come, And also, Lord, give us compassion, because these are the ones you wait for. Um, And give us grace as we apply the knowledge that we read each day in the scriptures. Give us grace as we live with one another and as we engage with one another. Just as it takes us a long time to grow, it takes the same with others. Lord, we love you, and thank you that, uh, as Peter is with you, we look forward to that great day when we will get to see the big fisherman and thank him for writing these books. And ultimately, though, Lord, we're looking forward to seeing you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. It's a powerful question, isn't it? If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, how would that affect today? What would you do differently? It's really the mindset that we need to carry with us all the time because the reality is none of us knows the day of our death. At the same time we need to continue to grow in the grace of God by living the Bible. Next week we're going to get back into our series where we take a look at one message from each book of the Bible. From the shortest book of the Bible we're going to look at all we gain by putting pride aside. That's next. Until then, live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.